Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Sara Vagaro, who is the founder, CEO, and CTO of Sierra.ai, a company that is building AI-driven solutions to boost compliance, prevent accidents, and fill labor shortages in logistics. They use active sensing and braking that helps slow down and stop forklifts and other powered industrial trucks to prevent accidents before they even happen. They also have a number of other different products that are really a game changer in terms of logistics and make everything safer for the workers. In this episode, Sarov goes through how he started the company, the challenges that come along with being the CEO and CTO of the company, what traction he's achieved so far, how he thinks about pricing, how he thinks about hiring, the biggest challenges so far in the business, and so much more. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show, leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast. And finally, the weekly grind, my weekly newsletter with tips, tools, and strategies for growing a business can be found at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Sara Vagaro, the CEO and CTO of Sierra.ai. Saraf, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, great to have you on. And, and with Sierra.ai, how did this company get started in the first place? So, Justin, um, in 2013, I started my PhD at Texas A&M in uh, College Station, Texas. And I started my first company, actually, in, in the beginning of my PhD, right? Yeah. And uh, that company was called GuideBuddy. So what we used to do at GuideBuddy was we used to bring on board locals in different cities to act as travel guides. So something like an Airbnb, but for travel guides. So Justin, you could come visit uh, in Austin and GuideBuddy would help you find a local to take you around the city, right? Love it. And that got me my first taste of uh, building a team, building you know a tech product, um, and really learning through that process of what product market fit looks like. Unfortunately, that company had to be shut down. But the learnings I took away from that were amazing. I mean, it was what got me started on my entrepreneurial journey. Fast forward to 2017. And so I'd you know, been doing my PhD in robotics. And I realized that I had all these ideas and uh, a lot of different technologies that I had a good hold of and I could build them. But what I needed to find out was what's the real need in the marketplace? Like where can these technologies for autonomous robots, computer vision be really applied to make a difference today, right? Yeah. While finishing up my PhD, I got a $50,000 grant from the National Science Foundation. And and with that grant, I basically traveled across um, the country, across the world, actually even went to Singapore, attended different conferences, met customers and did the whole lean startup a customer discovery journey. I did that with actually uh, a one mentor and a prof- my professor. And that was the beginning of the company. I then brought on board my co-founder and we took the learnings from that customer discovery process and boiled that into a, a, a set of key insights, right? So what did we learn? We learned that warehouses, factories, and distribution centers, so supply chain, logistics, right? You know, these... Uh, businesses have huge investments in their um, you know forklifts and mobile industrial vehicle fleets right and so think about this a forklift is only you know going to cost you something like 30 to 50k 
depending on which forklift you buy, but you know, one, an expensive one could even be a hundred K. The real killer there is the cost of the human operator, which could be like, you know, if you're running a 24 seven operation, you're paying 150 K each year on that, for that uh, vehicle to be driven. Right. Yeah. Right. And on top of that, when people drive these vehicles, they cause accidents. They need to be trained. If they get a slightly higher pay somewhere else, they'll jump ship and go work for somebody else. So there's a labor hiring challenge. There's a labor retention challenge. There's accidents, which means that there's injuries, there's a lot of damage. And then there's obviously the shortage of labor issue. So that's how we boiled it down to like, okay, we can take our technology for automation, autonomy, computer vision, and bring it to this market and leverage the existing install base. So we wouldn't build a new forklift. We would actually go and install these uh, technologies on existing forklifts, which our customers already own, and make them smarter. So in the beginning there, when you're thinking about this and you're going to go into this industry, were there other industries you were thinking about at that time? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, when I was finishing up my PhD, I even interviewed for jobs at uh, self-driving car companies, right? And one of them was called Zooks. And, and they made an offer to me and, and actually they were bought by Amazon last month. So I was thinking of a lot of different things, but whenever I talked to these startups, especially in the self-driving car industry, the feeling that I got was that they did not still have a clear pathway to building a viable business, right? And yeah. so it kind of pushed me away from the self-driving car space altogether because that was something I was thinking of. And, you know, I realized that it's, you know, be practical, be grounded in reality. It's going to take 15, 20 years, maybe more to make robotaxis a reality. And it didn't make sense to me to, to, to build a startup in that space. Yeah, and this seems like a much more clear path with this, obviously, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially in, hind in hindsight. And and with that too, you mentioned the customer discovery. I just want to go through a little bit. Like, What were you trying to get out of that process? And maybe what were some of the questions you're asking just more broadly? Yeah, so what we were trying to get out of the process is uh, we have these ABC technologies. And when I say ABC, I mean, in general, we had technologies for autonomous driving for computer vision, what we wanted to find out was which industry can really leverage uh, and drive value, business value from these technologies. And how do we actually build a product that fits into the customer's pain point, into the customer's need? So when we talk to these, uh, you know, warehouses and factories, uh, what they would tell us is, look, you know, I have a, a multi-million dollar budget to buy forklifts every, every year. I have, you know, five, 10,000 forklifts in my, um, in my, you know, warehouse fleet in just in the US, maybe 50,000 plus globally. Can you do something to make these vehicles more productive or more safe for me? Can you, for example, automate the vehicle that I have? Or can you make the vehicle that I have uh, safer by making it stop itself before it has an accident? And, and that goes against the approach of, you know, building a whole robotic forklift, which they had looked at in the market and decided that was too expensive and the return on investment for a factory or a warehouse to buy like a quarter million dollar robotic forklift was just not there. Yeah. And so obviously then going to the, the tech side of it, improving their current, their current um, products and the things they already are using, which then is a lot more lower cost with that too, then understanding this and getting those, those insights from customers, how did you think through what your kind of initial product would be? I know there's a couple of different things you offer now. How did you think through that process of what are these initial products going to actually be for the company? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's you know that's the most unique and interesting part of building a startup is, um, you know, you have to jump off a cliff and build your <laughs> aeroplane as you're falling down, and and hopefully it flies right. So right, uh, it's a funny story here. The first time we demoed our product was to an investor, and uh, we'd been having some technical troubles, and this was in you know early 2018. And I just hired a new electrical engineer and I told him like, okay, welcome. This is your first day. And by the way, you got to get this product ready because to, uh, three days from now, we have an investor demo. So, oh man. <laughs> um, but uh, it really came about because we got a, a pilot customer very early on, like the, probably a month after we incorporated the company, we had a pilot customer signed up. So we actually talked to them and said, okay, will this work for you? Or will that work for you? And we boiled it down to like a, two or three key requirements and that's how we built the first prototype and with that first customer how did you how did they find you in the first place then um you know what 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 i've learned building a business is that it's all about the people and it was a a, a referral given to me by one of my advisors and that advisor himself became an advisor because he was connected to me by one of my college friends so, so it was an introduction <laughs> That's great. And and with that, so you, you're working with this first customer, you have, you know, okay, what product do you actually need? What should we build first? Take me through like then the growth from there. Like how did the company grow from there? How did it evolve from that first customer to even like where you're, you're at now? So once the first pilot was done, the, the, we really hit the, the gas pedal hard. So what happened was that we got a lot of data and insights and customer feedback. We used that to iterate and improve the product. And we signed up a major, uh, food company, uh, food producer after that. It's it's probably top two in the world in protein. And uh, we signed them up. Uh, we used their insights to build a, a very refined version of our automatic collision prevention, uh, or, or you, know, you can call it an advanced driver assist system for industrial vehicles. We piloted it with them, uh, went really well, like you know, once it was installed, that vehicle did not have accidents. Uh, driver comfort was super high. Uh, everybody from the senior VPs to the plant manager loved it because you know, in, in a in a in a food production fa- uh, you know factory, think about this: if you've got 40, 50 forklifts and you've got you know two, three hundred people working there, the potential for an incident, for an accident, is really high, right? Oh yeah. And, and these directors, these VPs, they care a lot about making sure that their work. Uh, workforce is safe so we were able to demonstrate that once our system is installed there basically is almost zero chance of an accident or an incident happening so the customer loved it they signed up they gave us a purchase order and what we did was in around q3 2019 we hosted a demo day at at another customer's facility and at that demo day there was a a big warehousing company that just you know happened to stop by and look at it the moment they looked at it, their mind was completely blown. <laughs> and, and they were like, okay, can you come into my facility right now? So I had to actually change, change my flights. I was supposed to leave. I canceled my flights. I went into their facility. And then 30 days later, we had a major uh, order from them. And this is for, I cannot, under because we are under NDA, I cannot disclose names, but this is for a major uh, e-commerce distribution center in, in the Midwest. By major, I mean like more than 200,000 items shipped every day 
Jeez. <laughs> so what a genius idea for having that that kind of showcase to then have other people see it. Like once you see the technology in you know in place, it seems like that would be just a great way to get new customers on board. Absolutely. And you know what we do now is we realize that it works so well that whenever we do an installation, we we take permission from that customer to have other customers come and see it, and that just kind of build a, a you know a virtuous cycle. Yeah, and there's a lot to kind of get through in terms of getting even getting to this point. I have a couple of questions on that. So you had that first initial grant that got you off the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the funding like uh, throughout to kind of fund this? Because obviously you have to get paid. And like, how was that? How did that go early on? Yeah. So me and my co-founder put in a little, a little bit of money in the beginning, and then the first real outside money we got was actually from um, the dorm room fund in Silicon Valley. It's a, it's a small fund that operates with supervision from first round capital and they invested. And after that, we got uh, a bunch of angel capital. And so we've actually built our business on, on angel in uh, capital. And uh, one of our first angel investors is a big name in the self-driving car industry and uh, actually works in, in top management at the C-suite level in one of the major uh, car companies. So again, I can't disclose his name, but sure. he really helped us and connected us to a lot of good people. And so we have you know, public company CEOs, we have CEOs of major corporations, we have uh, entrepreneurs who you know, built multiple companies and had great exits invest in us. We have angel funds invest in us from all across the country. With that, how did you get those people on board? Was it just connections through the university you're at? Like, how did you get these people? Because I mean, if you think about entrepreneurs who are maybe listening early on, early on especially, like, how do I get these advisors on board? Like, how did you go through that process? Then? So let me put a little bit of context to that. You know, being sure. from India and moving to the US, I had no uh, inbuilt or, you know, pre-existing network to speak of, right? So we had to build that up from scratch. The way we did that was we would uh, go to angel investor presentations or angel pitch events, right? And we would pitch super, super hard. Like we would, we were basically grinding our, our way through the angel pitches in Texas. So we would go to Austin, we'd go to Dallas, uh, small towns like Tyler, Texas and Houston, you know, and we found broad support. I mean, and this actually, you know, um, maybe going a little bit off topic, but you know, for, for outsiders, Texas is considered kind of a very like, you know, closed off or like a, some would even say it's, it's you know, it's a very racist kind of place. But I found that to be completely opposite because most of our investors, and so I'm, I'm a person of color and most of my investors are actually, you know, white people, right? And, yeah. and, and they supported me. I mean, I never was treated bad in any way. And, and they saw the value. They saw that we were putting in a lot of hard work and, and they invested. And they invested a lot of money with us and supported us and became mentors. And uh, one of my mentors, you know, would spend almost six months coaching me through one hour uh, meetings every day and introduce me to a lot of people. So his angel fund, which is based in college, uh, College Station, Texas, where I did my PhD, was our first angel investor. That's amazing. And it shows that that kind of hustle to just go out and start pitching and start making that network when you have zero network yeah. <laughs> and to go from zero then to what you have now which seems like a kind of a plus players and it also goes go you know it goes to the work you're doing and and the solution you have to this problem obviously as well but um have you ever like you've gone this angel route with investors have you wanted to go the vc route at a, a bigger raise or anything or like how have you thought about that what we did was we always had the option of raising venture capital in the beginning what we realized was that to make it beneficial for everybody 
uh, and to have flexibility early on, it's better to work with angels. Now we're at a point where we're working with VCs and we're actually having some really great investor conversations and we have some uh, very strong potential and we'll be releasing some good news pretty soon. That's awesome. Um, and to that point, like as you've gone here, like, like as Sierra AI is right now, I know you said like on your website, it has like you know, four, maybe like four to 500 com- uh, customers. Like, like what kind of traction do you have at this point? You're three, roughly three years in. What kind of traction does Sierra AI have uh, at this point? Um, so we have actually this year has been accelerated sales for us. Uh, Great. Uh, Q1 and Q2, we were at a point where we were having trouble fulfilling the order p- pipeline, especially when COVID hit, the supply chain slowed down. Uh, yeah. So we've big, uh, we, yeah, I mean, uh, we've booked, uh, we have seven or eight, you know, big corporations as paying customers. We have booked several hundred thousand dollars of revenue, actually closer, getting close to a million at this point. And uh it's just, you know, it's it's been a hell of a ride. That's great. And how big is the team right now? Uh, the team is actually 11 people full-time. So we are a diverse cross-border team. We have nine full-time in the US, uh, two remote engineers in India, and then we have a couple of contractors. And you're you're right now a CEO and CTO. Is that is that challenging doing, doing both or take me through that right now? I'm curious. Yeah, it's a question that, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been asked a couple of times. So it's... Very early on, me and my co-founder came up with a division of responsibility. And I said, look, you handle everything to do with uh, sales, marketing, partnerships, traveling and, and doing you know, conferences, trade shows. So you take that burden off of me and he does a wonderful job at that. I mean, I'm really so glad that I work with my co-founder, Suhas, who has been an immense, you know, extremely hardworking. He's much older than me, but he has, you know, the level, a drive and a level of passion that I've not seen in people younger than me. <laughs> uh, you know, he'll get up at 5 a.m., he'll hit the gym, he'll get to work, and he's, he's going to work 12, 14 hours a day. And wow. it's amazing. And so he handles that part. So I then get to focus on product development, hiring, and investor relations, and making sure that my customers uh, get the right product for their needs and wants. It's a challenge, but I think if you structure it and do, you know, the right kind of hiring and time management, you can make it work. Obviously, in the long run, we plan to, as we raise more capital, we plan to bring on uh, senior leadership in engineering and, and management and sales. But it's it's been challenging, but uh, really enjoyable so far. Yeah. And on, you mentioned the hiring side of it, and that can be such a, a difficult and also incredibly important thing for startups. Like, How do you think about hiring? Uh, like, What is your, your, approach, to, your approach to hiring? Because like I said, it is so important for startups. Yeah, yeah. So I look for a couple of traits when I hire people, right? Um, one is how structured is your thinking, right? People who are not able to hold a, a train of thought, I find that uh, they tend to be very scattered and it's hard to get uh, you know, continuous work out of them. So I try to find people with certain traits. For example, uh, people who take a why, what, how approach. And by that, what I mean is they understand why something must be done from the, which gives them the direction and the focus. Then they come up with the what, which is, you know, what are the action items, what needs to be done? And the how part, the actual execution, you know, whether it's for a software engineer, what coding language to use, whether it's for a, a salesperson, what CRM to use, those are the details. But I look for people who have that structured thought process and credit goes to my team. Uh, they are super intelligent, first of all. They work really hard. And the best part I've learned is that you have to find people who have the right attitude because skills can be taught, but attitude is hard to teach, right? So attitude matters a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's I love I love that framework you mentioned around that the why, what, how. I think that's that's you looking back. I'm I'm thinking of like how how even looking at problems now. Like that's exactly what it is. Like why are you doing this in the first place? What do you need to do? And there's so many different ways for the how. So having that framework is is really helpful. And you had also talked about the product side having a, a big uh, hand in that as well. I'd love to dig into the product, especially for people even considering like using your, your company as well. Like, what are the product offerings now with Sierra AI? Yep. So, our core product offering currently is called the Sierra Safety System. What it is, Justin, is a, a retrofitable IoT device. It installs onto our customers' existing industrial vehicles like forklifts within uh, forty-five to sixty minutes. And it has some sensors, it has an onboard computer, so it has an AI engine running on it, and it connects to the cloud over Wi-Fi. So what it does is it senses for proximity or probability of collision to uh, you know obstacles around the vehicle as the driver is driving. And then if it predicts based on what the driver is doing and what's around the vehicle, if there's an accident about to happen, it'll actually slow down and stop the forklift. The beauty of this is that it is installed on site. There is no change to the way the driver actually does his or her job because the key part here is adoption by these operators on the ground. And what we derive out of that is a lot of data. So what we give our customers is not just accident prevention, which, by the way, is a $35 billion a year problem in the U.S. for forklift, right? We prevent their accidents. We save people from getting hurt. We prevent their facility infrastructure like racks uh, to get from getting damaged. We tell them who's a good driver, who's a bad driver. We tell them which driver is better on which vehicle. We can even impose location-based speed limits. So we can say, you know, aisle one is high pedestrian traffic. So automatic slowdown for all vehicles as they enter this place. And then aisle five is usually empty, so they can go faster. So we boost their productivity while enhancing safety by a huge margin. That's incredible. I mean, it seems like it's such a no-brainer in that, in that industry. Like with that, with these products, they're obviously doing some some crazy things. You mentioned the demos as well, where people are so kind of blown away by that. Like, what is the whether it be your, your customer acquisition strategy or sales, like how are you approaching growth in terms of getting new customers with this this product that's doing such great things? So the way we approach customer growth is through a very well-refined go-to-market strategy that we've built through our customer discovery journey, right? So we gathered a lot of data points early on onto what is the right profile for a customer that fits our product, right? Product market fit, that that magical feeling of, you know, you built something that actually fits to a customer <laughs> need. Yep. So from that broad market of $35 billion a year, we came out with certain rules like, okay, we will only work with facilities that are, you know, let's say 100,000 square foot or bigger or a facility that uses 10 or more vehicles. And we segmented the market. And then once we segmented by, by those hard numbers, we divided it into verticals like, okay, e-commerce warehouses, uh, food production facilities. And we discovered which facilities have the highest incident rates. And we looked at data from the OSHA website. And then we actually sent out salespeople. So we made phone calls. We attended trade shows and conferences. We got customer introductions through other customers. And that's how we onboarded customers. It's, a, it's been a very, uh, you know, a lot of hustle and a lot of data-driven analysis of what the market needs. With, with COVID and not being trade shows, how has that impacted your business? So... 
COVID, actually, that's, again, a very common question that gets that I get asked, even by investors, like, what has been your response to COVID? So two things. We immediately switched from trade shows and conferences to a webinar model. And we started getting a huge attendance on our webinars. And that's actually driven some sales. And we onboarded customers for annual subscriptions for our software after they looked at our webinars. The other thing is that with when COVID hit, we super accelerated our uh, remote team hiring process. And we started hiring senior and experienced engineers in India. What that does is it gives us two things. It helps us leverage talent across the globe without any geographical restrictions. So we can find people in India who have worked at major companies like LinkedIn, Amazon, Facebook, and have built great products. And secondly, it helps us keep our cost of product development controlled. And so we can run a lean and mean machine. And one thing too, as you've kind of grown this this team, there's the, you have all these different products and services that you can help companies with. Obviously, like a game changer in terms of the industry, and the industry has such a a, a huge issue here. With you know, I saw I think it was like eighty or ninety thousand accidents in the U.S. Maybe or it's like so much, such a big issue. How do you look at then with your with your products? The pricing. How do you how do you think about pricing? You don't have to say the actual price, but how do you think about pricing when it, it's obviously such a huge challenge that you're solving? How do you think through that? You know, pricing is one of those things that it's is as much an art as a science, right? And uh, the way we got to our pricing model was we first did some uh, value worksheets for our customers. So we looked at okay. Uh, for example, a chicken facility in Texas is spending three to four hundred thousand dollars on doing facility repair work from forklift damage, right? And that's a true number. That's from a customer data point. Then wow. there's another distribution center in, let's say, the Midwest that is spending about six hundred thousand dollars every year in repairing and rebuilding its racks and machinery because that it gets hit and damaged by forklifts. So we would then work our way backwards from that and say, look, this is what the customer is spending. And then on top of that, they have workman's comp, insurance, medical bills, and settlements. These are the number of forklifts. This is the forklift usage. What is, you know, what are some of the numbers like, you know, what is the incident rate per hour? What is the incident rate per operator? And then we use that information to come up with the pricing model that helps us, you know, have a decent margin so we can make some money on it. And our customer gets a 12 to 24 month return on investment. So Justin, if you were running a three shift warehouse, like 24 seven, you would yep. get a payback within 12 months. If you were right. running a, a two shift warehouse, like, you know, a two eight hour shifts or two 10 hour shifts, you would get a payback between 12 and 24 months, usually land at about 18 months. Jeez. That's awesome. I mean, it's a good way to, th to think about it. And I'm always kind of curious about pricing because it is, like you said, as much of an art as it is a science, there's no necessarily right answer. And it, it, sometimes you talk to entrepreneurs and they're like, I wish I would have charged more because they, <laughs> you know. You always wish you could charge more, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Um, we, we, yeah, which is always an interesting thing to look at. And with your company as well, in this type of solution, how do you look at competition? Uh, I imagine other people are thinking of some of the same thing. How do you look at competition uh, day to day? So I look at competition the way Jeff Bezos looks at his competition. And by that, <laughs> what I mean is I really love Jeff Bezos's business philosophies. And one of the things he said, and I, and I hope I'm quoting him right, is that, you know, we don't pay attention as much to our competition as to our customers, right? Because- yep competition is always going to come whether it's from an entrenched player like a, a, an existing player in the market or from an upstart 
we are watchful. We we always keep our eyes open and ears to the ground to see what's happening in, in the broader marketplace. But our core focus is always going to be the customer and the value to the customer. If we can make sure that our product is sticky and that the customer wants more and more from us and the customer is bringing us into more facilities and giving us more references, we know we're in the right direction. So that's our true north. Yeah, I I'm definitely love what, what Bezos has done and, and built. And he has some pretty good quotes as, as well. I'm talking about people's people's margin is his opportunity as well. Yes. Like there's a few different things yes. in that. And, and so that makes total sense from the kind of the, the competition um, side of things. Looking back at building this company the last uh, few years here, what have been the biggest challenges? So I would say the earliest biggest challenge, uh, obviously being an outsider to the industry and, and to the country as well, was getting to know the right people to hire right. So hiring was a big challenge initially uh, until I built up my network through my PhD and through my colleagues uh, at work. I got connections and hired some really good people. And then raising capital was another big challenge early on because, again, you know, uh, going and pitching, you know, proving that, you know, you're a PhD with no business experience. So you brought on a business co-founder and demonstrating that you have a well-rounded team to, to build a business. You know, coming over those objections and barriers was hard in the early days. And after that, it's been, you know, the usual challenges. You know, you, you, you raise capital, you then go hire a team, you build a product. And then you're like, okay, this is going great. And then, you know, some customer will throw a new challenge at you. So you got to you know, out-innovate their challenges. So it's it's been a, a lot of the same thing from, you know, building the product. And then once the product is built, okay, then you got to get the customer. And you get the customer, then you're like, oh, crap, I go need to go back and raise more capital because I have more customer demand. So I need more people. So it's that chicken and egg problem, right? Yep. And with that too, then how do you look at kind of the the short-term versus long-term thinking in your business? So, you know, for that, what I like to, and it's funny you asked that question. Just yesterday, I was talking to my team and I said, look, we have to be impatient, but patient. And, <laughs> and that's the philosophy for building a startup. And I think if I look back, that's been kind of the core tenet. What I mean by that is got to be impatient with action and patient with results. The human brain is pretty funny in the way it's wired. We we tend to overestimate what we'll get done in a, in a span of hours and days, and we totally underestimate what we can do in months and years, right? Yeah. Right? So we are impatient with action. That means we, we work hard. We don't delay things. We look out for what we can do next and try to get it done now. But we are patient with the results because you cannot push your customers to be as fast as you. You cannot push your investors to be as fast as you because they need to go through their own process. Yeah, and yeah, impatient, yeah, patient. It's 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 so difficult to do and to think about as you're as you're growing and it's easy to maybe <laughs> you can hear that you're like, "Oh yeah, of course, impatient, patient." But uh executing is another thing as well and kind of keeping that top of mind day to day uh can be a challenge. And one of the challenges you just kind of mentioned here with with the fundraising being so difficult with any entrepreneur listening who is going through fundraising or even for the first time or even a second, like the second time, like what would you tell them or any, any advice or suggestions uh, on the fundraising process to, to help with that? So here's some candid advice. If you're a technical founder, learn to talk like an MBA because most of the <laughs> investors you're pitching to are people in the finance industry with, you know, MBA backgrounds. And if you cannot talk the way they like to be talked to, it's hard for you to, to impress them and, and, you know, and get the money. So just funny conversation. So my brother, actually, my younger brother taught me how to uh, 
because he's an MBA from UCLA and, and he worked in venture capital. So he taught me how to pitch to VCs. So that's the best. Go find somebody who has raised venture capital before and ask them to mentor you. Practice the hell out of your pitch again and again till literally your ears start to bleed and you can't listen to yourself anymore. <laughs> and, and go get other people to critique your deck. Make sure your deck is well designed because the design matters. As, as somebody who doesn't have a track record of building billion dollar companies, you have to be kind of anal about the details in every aspect, right? And, yeah. And uh, it's a little bit of luck is involved and a little bit of, uh, you know, just uh, guardian angels, good people out there looking out for you. Yeah, absolutely. And with your company, what is this this grand vision? What's the grand vision for Sierra.ai? Justin, our grand vision is to build a, a, a bridge between the physical world of a, of a warehouse on an industrial operation in the future where there's people you know, operating vehicles, people operating machinery, people walking around. And then there's the digital world today, which is the, the warehouse management system or the enterprise resource planning system, ERP. These are very weakly connected today. What we want to do is we want to put these devices on these, uh, IoT, these IoT devices on these platforms and collect a lot of data to drive value for the customer. So for example, today we are preventing accidents, right? And we are giving our customers data on driver behavior, driver risk, driver productivity, equipment utilization. Moving forward, we will be giving them data about how their inventory moves, what their inventory count looks like. Are they you know, down on some inventory? Was the product damaged when it was loaded onto the trailer or was it not? So we're essentially building a data platform. And that all that data that we collect over the long term helps us build the, the training models for full autonomy, for general autonomy in these facilities. Wow, which will be an absolute game changer. <laughs> yep, yep. And looking back kind of here, like what have, have there been any particular books, uh, resources that have been helpful for you? Obviously you mentioned the people side of things, but any, any books that you've been, uh, been helpful in your entrepreneurial journey? Yes. Yes. And I'm glad you asked that question. So principles by Ray Dalio is one of my favorites. Um, never split the difference by Chris Voss on negotiating tactics is amazing. And that's been literally an eye opener and a life changer for me. It's a must read. Um, apart from that, I love reading Malcolm Gladwell's books. Um, there's one book called High Output Management by the uh, one of the CEOs of Intel, uh, Andy Grove, I believe. And uh, I think last but not the least, um, I'd love to follow what uh, Jeff Bezos does. So I do try to you know see what his management profile is, what his management uh, tactics are. That's kind of my go-to. Yeah, those are some some incredible people to learn from, and especially look at books written by those people like Ray Dalio, for instance, who've been so successful. There's so much to learn from that. I've gotten through maybe maybe half of his book uh, through Principles. Uh, it's 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 incredible. It's so good. Um, and I'm always curious with with founders because there's so many ways to go about this. How do you go about managing your time day to day? Like, if you could take me through a a, a day in the life of Sarav, I'm curious. Like, what does it look like? So my day starts pretty early. I would usually wake up at 6 a.m. Um, so like today, since 7 a.m., uh, I've been basically in meetings. So 7 to 8, I did a, a candidate interview where we went through his uh, portfolio of coding projects. Then I'm doing this, this podcast interview. Right after this, I have a customer call at 9 a.m. So that's a one-hour customer demo. After that, I'll basically have a 
quick breakfast, run to the office and meet with my team. Then there's another interview and that list just <laughs> goes on, right? So most of my time is spent um, either thinking about problems that need to be solving, uh, that we need to be solving or planning the roadmap for what we need to do looking ahead. Or I'm spending my time talking to my customers, talking to potential jo- job candidates, talking to my team and talking to investors. And most of the day just gets taken up like that. Yeah. And, and with that too, like at the end of the day, I mean, how do you decide when, when you stop for the day? Because for a lot of entrepreneurs, you could, in theory, just keep working forever. You can like, keep how- working, right? And there is no end to this, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like how do you and, decide? And that's, that's the thrill of it. I think uh, some days I just, you know, I don't decide. I just crash. Right. So that my, my body makes it easy for me. I just fall asleep on the couch uh, after having dinner. And some days I just have to say, look, you know, if I keep going at this further, I'm not going to make any good decisions. I have probably some decision fatigue in me right now. So I need to take a break, uh, you know, chill out, go sleep, or maybe just read a book or something and then come back to this tomorrow. Yeah. And kind of on that similar vein, like what do you do to recharge uh, when you're not working? So, uh, me and my wife, we spend a lot of time, like, uh, we try to spend time making music. Um, she's a beautiful singer, and she's an artist. And and I learned to play the guitar in my college days. So we try to do that, though we don't do that enough. I love to read. I read a lot of books. Um, I love cooking. That's my thing. So on my own blog, I, I actually put out recipes. And one of my, you know, f- fantasies is to actually write a couple of books. So I love writing. And, uh, you know, you asked me the question about, you know, which books I've read. So I've actually boiled that down into a, a, a principles document for Sierra AI, which I'd be happy to share. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the management philosophy that I've developed over the years at Sierra, which is essentially uh, boiling down the lessons from these books plus, you know, boots on the ground experience. Yeah, and you'll have to talk to uh, my friend Morgan McDonald, who is on the podcast. She has a company called Paper Raven Books and basically mm-hmm. helping people go through that process of writing a book. So if you ever want to, uh, happy to make that intro because she's she's great. Um, oh, and and there, yeah, because writing a book is also something I've, I've thought about as well. And in time, I think I, I will do that. But I love what you mentioned with uh, taking time to make music. That's such an interesting interesting way to spend time with your, with your significant other to create. Yeah. How, I mean, you mentioned the recipes too. Where can people find those? Uh, so my blog is uh, sauravag.com. So S-A-U-R-A-V-A-G.com. So I do post recipes there. So a lot of those recipes need to be posted still. And uh, <laughs> I post my management principles and my learnings there. And I'll be posting my, my, my Sierra AI principles book pretty soon over there. Awesome. And is there any other kind of advice you'd give to other entrepreneurs based on your journey so far? I think, uh, you know, Let's boil it down to the top five. Sure. Find find good people. I hate to do the top five, by the way, because there's like top 50. <laughs> um, but, you can say uh, as many as you want. There's no limit here, yeah, Sarah. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Um, you know, it, people get attracted by the whole top seven things to do and all that. Um, of course, so, BuzzFeed did that to us, yeah. Yeah. So find good people to work with. Never compromise on the quality of the, of the people. What they say in business is if you sign a contract with good uh, with a good person, the contract is almost just a formality, not you know not necessary. And if you sign a contract with a bad person, no matter what the contract says, you'll get screwed. So <laughs> work with good people. Uh, make sure you're patient. So impatient but patient. Do not be uh, do not get frustrated when the results don't come fast because it is going to 
always take longer than you expect it to. Always, always, always. The third thing is that uh, take care of your health. I think that's the key thing. Take out time for yourself to, to exercise, to eat healthy. Do not compromise on the quality of uh, what you, how you take care of yourself. Because, again, think long term, right? If you don't take care of your health and, you're, and you suffer long term, your business suffers. Fourth thing is build a very, very strong team culture. Think hard about how you want people to behave in, in, in your t- company, in your team, and, and enforce that. Because culture is one thing. If it's there, you don't realize it. But when it's gone, you, you, it slaps you in the face. You miss it. So building a good culture is very important. And last but not the least, um, leave some room open for luck. Because not everything is under your control. So sometimes things will happen that are out of your control. And you just got to learn to adapt, open your eyes, and out of adversity comes opportunity. I love those, Sarah. That's great. And, and where can people go to learn more about all you're doing? Um, they can go to my company website, sierra.ai. That's S-I-E-R-A.ai. They can also come over to my blog, which is sauravag.com. That's S-A-U-R-A-V-A-G.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Justin, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. JustGoGrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.